A video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. Hey, my name's Steve Hall, and I want to thank you for joining our Bible study today. Before we get into today's Bible study, I would like to invite you to come to check out our Standing Firm Bible Study class in person. We're at Fairview Baptist Tabernacle in Sweetwater, Tennessee. We meet in the downstairs fellowship hall of the auditorium building at 10.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings immediately after the 9 o'clock worship service. Here's a little map for you. See the little red lines? (laughs) Notice if you're in the auditorium, just follow those red arrows. If you're in the back, go straight down that hallway behind you to the stairwell. If you're near the front of the auditorium, you can go out the left door, and I mean left as you're sitting in the auditorium looking toward the pulpit and the choir. Go to your left, go out that door, all the way down to the end of the hall, keep to your left, all the way down to the stairwell, and then turn right and go down the stairwell. We meet in the fellowship hall around the tables near the kitchen downstairs. If you have trouble with stairs, there are men driving golf carts near the entrance to the auditorium building at the crossover there who will be glad to give you a ride to a door that enters the building on our level, so you won't have to do any steps at all. We're a co-educational class, men and women both invited. We're for all ages, doesn't matter how old or how young. Children and youth are certainly welcome, but some children and youth actually prefer to go to the children and youth classes, which meet at the same time we meet, more on their level. Dress, totally casual. Class members are certainly encouraged to participate in the Bible study, ask questions, engage in conversation. But listen, if you happen to be kind of shy, we promise we're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to ask you to read. We're not going to ask you to pray. We're not going to ask you any specific questions directed to you. It isn't unusual for class members who are kind of shy just to not say anything at all once class gets started. So that's your choice. So I'm just saying, please don't feel intimidated if you happen to be the shy type. I know sometimes the first meeting is kind of tough for the shy people. But there's never been a time when it's been more important for God's people to meet in small Bible study fellowship groups in order to encourage each other. We've got to stand firm in his truth. We've got to stand firm on his word. These are very confusing days we're living in. You know that. So we'd love for you to join us and just see for yourself what God's doing in our class. If you'd like more information, go to AboundingJoy.com. There's the web address right there on the screen. You can click on the Standing Firm Bible Class menu item when you get there. You may want to hit pause right now or do a screen save to get, make sure you get the spelling right, but you can learn more information about us there. Now, here's today's Bible study. I hope and pray it helps you grow stronger in our Lord Jesus Christ and in your knowledge of His Word and of His will for your life. Well, hey guys, thanks for joining me in Bible study again today. We're working our way through this incredible, powerful, and almost stunningly relevant passage of Romans. It begins with chapter 1, verse 16, and continues on through the end of chapter 1. In the previous two studies, we looked at verses 16 through 18, and then at verses 19 through 22. Today, we're going to pick up with verse 23, but before we do that, I'd like for us to at least read that again, just to keep the context in our minds. I think this context is so important because of the way Paul builds his argument. Then we'll pick it up today in verse 23. So let's start with verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Now that's where we stopped last time. Men who are highly educated in secular human education, men with PhDs, THDs, EDDs, MDs. You know what? Some time ago, I went to Wikipedia and looked up to see how many different doctoral degrees I could find. They had a list. I counted 83 of them. I don't know if I counted them all or not. 83, 83 different doctoral degrees. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying they're bad. I mean, I know a lot of wonderful people who have doctor's degrees. But Satan sure does love to use doctor's degrees to feed men's pride and ego, doesn't he? Men who are university professors, sometimes they have impressive vocabularies. They seem sophisticated. Many times they're very articulate. Sometimes they seem very polished. Sometimes they have a lot of esteem, a lot of self-esteem and a lot of esteem from others. Some of these people are famous celebrities. Some of them have been elected to high office. Some of them had, have managed to accumulate billions of dollars of assets. These are people who think they are very wise. But if they leave God out of their thinking, God says, oh, no, you are not wise at all. You are a fool. Your foolish heart has been darkened. We've seen that. There's an extremely important warning here for us. We need to be careful Guys, please stay with me here. We need to be careful that we are not easily impressed or intimidated by the wrong things. A lot of us are intimidated by people who have degrees and, have, and are articulate and have a big vocabulary. It makes us feel a little inferior, doesn't it? That's, that's sometimes by design. But there's no reason for us to be impressed or intimidated by fools. <laughs> if they're rejecting God, God says they're fools. We didn't decide that. God did. What we should be being is alarmed and astounded by the horrific blindness and darkness that causes them to think they're wise when they're running as fast as they can towards ruin and destruction and the wrath of God. As we saw back in verse 18, in their unrighteousness, in their embrace of sin and rebellion against God, in their futile thinking, in their darkened minds, they do their best to suppress God's truth. They suppress the truth. They don't want to hear the truth. They don't want to see the truth. They don't want you to see the truth. They don't want you to hear the truth. They do their very best to cover it up and push it down and away and, and suppress it. Now look at the next three verses. And they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men 
and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. So he tells us here, the true God is immortal. They exchange the glory of the immortal God, immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Immortal. That means indestructible, right? Incorruptible, eternal. He lives forever. He is, he calls himself the great I am. He is the self-existing one. Everything else that exists. Have you ever thought about this? Everything else that exists, everything gets its existence from him because he exists. He creates everything else. He's the only thing in the universe that deserves total worship and total praise and all the glory all the time. It belongs to him. He is the immortal God. Now, none of us are really able to give the immortal God all the glory that we ought to or all the glory that we would like to give him. But we need to try. We need to try to give him glory and praise and honor and thanksgiving. I think we come closest to that when we're immersed in praise and worship. There are some awesome songs of praise and high worship out there today. And I want to encourage you to get involved in singing those songs. While I'm talking about worship and singing, let me just chase a rabbit here for a minute. I would like to encourage you to practice trying to be aware when too much of our singing focuses mainly on us. There is a lot of so-called Christian singing today that's focus is not so much on God. It's focus is on us. Now, don't misunderstand me. I know there's balance here. There's a time for singing songs that are about how much God loves us and all the things he's done for us. Those might be considered songs of thanksgiving to God, and they're wonderful. But we just need to remind ourselves, wait a minute. This really isn't all about me. It's not about how much God thinks of me. It's not about what God has done and can do for me. Of course, we're thankful for what he's done. We're thankful for the, the blessings he's sent our way. But ultimately, we've got to remember, it isn't all about me. It's really all about him. So I need to make sure I'm singing a lot of high praise to him. Just kind of leave myself out sometimes, at least a little while every now and then, to acknowledge his greatness and his glory, his majesty, his honor, his praise. You see what I'm saying? To focus on him instead of me. If I focus all about me and what God's doing for me, it's almost like, okay, God, do this for me. Do this for me. Yes, you've done this for me. Thank you. Thank you. for It's all about me. No, it's not all about me. And we need to remember, even when we're engaged in the, in the best kind of worship, the high worship, trying to make it all about God, even then, we're in a war. Satan battles us. He tries to make us self-conscious about our, about our praise. And you've, you've experienced that, I'm sure. He wants to make us self-conscious about how our voice sounds or about our appearance or about what other, other people might be thinking about our worship instead of just what God's thinking. What are people going to think if I raise my hands to God? What are people going to think if, if I sing too loudly and, and everybody looks my way? <laughs> He's getting awfully loud, isn't he? <laughs> what are people going to think if I hit the wrong notes? Oh, no. <laughs> I hit the wrong note. 
What do we want to think of my old voice cracks? <laughs> Listen, guys, we just need to frequently say, God, please help me to forget all that stuff and just concentrate on you and just worship you, Lord. I want to worship you in spirit and in truth. I want to give you as much glory as I possibly can. Guys, this is so important. We need to get our focus off ourselves a little bit and focus on him. And worship is a wonderful way to do it. We don't need to try to praise him politely or respectably <laughs> based on what other people may think is politeness and respect. You know, we, we need to forget about our image, whether it's respectable or not. Just like David did. You remember when he, his wife said, you embarrassed yourself today, praising the Lord. He said, yeah, I'm going to do it even more. We need to praise him with loud praises. We need to praise him with gusto. <laughs> I think the immortal God deserves the most enthusiastic praise we can muster. Worship is not just a nice little part of a, of a service that we do to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. <laughs> Our immortal God deserves total praise and total worship. Also in the context of this verse, verse 23, when he says the glory of the immortal God, he's using the word glory to point to God's magnificence, his splendor, his brightness, his excellence, his preeminence, his majesty, his perfection, his awesomeness, his glory. But amazingly, and very foolishly, men don't want this glorious immortal God to interfere with their lives, so they choose instead to worship images. In that day, it was pretty common for people to make images of all kinds of things, usually different kinds of creatures, some kind of sometimes weird creatures that were put together in a weird kind of imaginary way. Some were tiny little images. You could carry them in your pocket, rub it with your hand for good luck. <laughs> some were so big they served as an item of furniture in the house. Some of them took up a whole room of a, of a home. And then, of course, there were those huge statues that were placed in these pagan temples, really big. But when you think about all those idols, very puny very powerless, very insignificant and, and light in comparison to the God of glory, the glory of the immortal God. Today, I think for the most part, the images we worship are often in our own minds. We have images in our minds. For some people, they have an image that's sort of like the true Jesus. They may call their image Jesus, but when you study the Bible real carefully and study their image real carefully, you realize, no, that's an imaginary Jesus. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. Sort of sounds like the true Jesus a little bit, but he's a caricature. And they hold that in their mind and they kind of worship that fake Jesus. That fake Jesus, for example, often thinks, sin is not that big a deal. Don't worry about it. It's no big deal. I don't care. Now, that's not the true Jesus. <laughs> Some people will try to claim they don't worship any God. Now, the truth is they're lying to themselves because something in their life is the most important thing in their life. And that's their God. So today, what many people try to do is they make gods out of themselves. They think they can decide for themselves what they want to be true, what they want to be real. They can't. They think they can decide for themselves what's right and what's wrong. They can't. But they think they can decide what their own ethical or moral code should be. And they're encouraged to do that by all kinds of secularists, people who don't believe in God. They think they can just declare something to be right and declare something to be good because they've got this desire. <laughs> And so if God says it's a sin, they say, no, 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 no. I don't believe that. I want it too much. It can't be a sin. I wouldn't want it this bad. No, it's a sin, God says. And God says, you can be sure 
our sins will eventually find us out. Even if we try to say, no, 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 this is not sin. This is very good. God tells us that in his, in his book, Numbers chapter 32. Be sure your sin will find you out. The glorious immortal God that Paul's talking about here, he's the one who defines sin and righteousness. He knows what leads to destruction. He knows what destroys lives. He calls that sin. The glorious immortal God is the God of truth. He tells us the truth about himself and about us and about the world we're living in. We don't need to be deceived. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. God is not mocked. People today try to excuse their sin by claiming that sin is part of their identity. You hear that all the time. They, they, what they're doing is they're trying to say, well, you say it's sin, but actually it's me. And when you say it's wrong, that would be like telling me my skin color is wrong or my height is wrong or my eye color is wrong. It's just the way I am. That's what they claim. And they want to say that if we claim their behavior is sinful, that would be like telling somebody to, have to repent because they got blue eyes or because they've got white skin or black skin or, or because they're too tall or too short. And by the way, the proponents of social justice and critical race theory, critical theory, they will tell you stuff like that. You need to repent because you're the wrong color. <laughs> you can't repent. Oh, well, the Bible teaches we're all born in sin. Every one of us. We're all descendants of Adam. We've all sinned. We all have sinful tendencies. We all tend to be incredibly self-centered, selfish. Some of us have a tendency that may be so strong, it seems like part of who we are. And so we want to excuse ourselves. It could be any, any kind of sin. I mean, some, some men have a strong desire to have sex with women who are not their wives. Others have a tendency to lose their temper and go into a rage when things don't go the way they want them to. Other people have a tendency to be very, very lazy and, and undisciplined. Others have a tendency to tell lies, to make ourselves look good, or to get out of embarrassing circumstances. Maybe it's a tendency to take something that's not yours. Maybe we take credit that belongs to somebody else, or take glory that belongs to God. Or maybe it's a tendency to gossip. Uh, some people have an inner tendency to want to have sex with kids. Some people have inner tendencies to hurt other people. I could go on and on and on. There are all kinds of sins. God lays it out for us very clearly in his word. All of us have certain weaknesses, certain areas where we are tempted to sin. And that's just life. That's the way we were born. So we have a tendency to say, you see, that's just the way I am. That's the way I was born. That's the way I'm wired. It's part of who I am. It's my nature. I can't do anything about it. But that's where they mess up right at the end. God won't let us get by with that. Yes, he agrees it's part of who you are, but he says it's sin, it's deadly, and it needs to be confessed and repented of. You can't just excuse it and say, well, that's just me. You've got to say, this is a sinful part of me. I may have inherited this tendency. I don't know where it came from, but it's sin because God says it's sin. And God says he can give me the victory over this stuff. He's got grace for me. But if I choose to excuse it, or rationalize it and claim it's just who I am. I'm not, don't need to repent. I'm not going to repent. We're just adding sin to more sin. And the end is going to be really, really ugly. But isn't it amazing? God tells us here in verse 23 that some men are so determined to keep him out of their lives that they exchange the ultimate and immortal glorious majesty for silliness. 
when God calls them fools, I think we can agree. Yeah, that's the right word. You chose the right word, Lord. I agree with you. People who reject God for cheap imitations and copies of things he's made are fools. Let me repeat. Some people want to try to claim they don't have a God. It's just not true. Every human being has something that is of ultimate importance to him or her. It might be the self. It, it could be a job. could be an education. Some people, it's the government. Some people, it's money. Sometimes it's another family member, a son or a daughter, a mother or a father, spouse maybe. Sometimes it's something as silly as trivial as a truck or a motorcycle. But those are the most important things in some people's lives. Most of the time, though, in our day, our educational system has been very efficient with some help from this, our enemy, the devil, at trying to convince people, just be your own God. You do what you think is right for yourself. You get to make that decision. But while jobs and family members and money and government and trucks and motorcycles can be blessings, they can be great tools. They can be great resources for serving the true God. All of them make lousy gods. <laughs> in the day we're living in today, many people reject the glorious, immortal, true God because they don't like what God says about sex. God created us with sex drives. He tells us very clearly how sex is to be controlled and how it can be a blessing. He also tells us how it can be used as a powerful engine for sin. God reveals all this to us. God tells us sex is to be between one man and one woman who are in a covenant relationship called marriage. And you can put a period right there. But a lot of people don't like that. They have desires. And those desires are certainly being fanned and fueled in this culture we're living in. We're living and immersed in a culture driven by all kinds of sexual passion, all kinds of pornography, every imaginable se sexual temptation you can come up with. It's utterly sinful. It's disgusting. God has the remedy, and it certainly isn't to say, well, that's just who I am. <laughs> no, no, no. God's remedy is turn to him for grace as we repent of our sins. He's very clear about our need for repentance. Now let's follow Paul's next thought. Because men exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Look at verse 24 now. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. The Greek word here for gave them up is paradidomi, very common word in the New Testament, used over a hundred times. Normally, it's used in the context of turning someone over to someone else as a captive, or maybe turning someone over to the control of some authority. It's used to refer to someone who's being handed over to a judge or handed over to the courts. Of course, Judas did this to Jesus. He handed Jesus over to the chief priests, the elders, and the officers of the temple. Jesus warned his followers that there would be a time when they would be handed over to civil courts to be punished. That's what happened when John the Baptist was arrested. He was handed over to Herod. Paul used it three times in this passage. Here in verse 26 and verse 28, God gave them up. God Handing them over. The word translated lust is epithumia. 
It refers to any strong or intense desire or craving or passion, but usually it refers to evil, wicked desires. So it's usually translated lust. Sometimes it's translated coveting or passions. Those are good translations of the word. It's the word Jude used when he wrote this. In the last time, there will be scoffers following what? Their own ungodly passions or lusts. It's the same word Peter used when he wrote this. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions, there's the word, or lust of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. In the Bible, God warns us many times of the danger of these ungodly desires. So in their passions, in their ungodly desires, in their hearts, these men have decided to pretend God didn't even exist so they could do whatever they wanted to do. So God gave them up, gave them up to bondage, to impurity. The word impurity here is akatharsia. Sometimes that's translated uncleanness. But in the New Testament, it's frequently associated with immorality and sensuality. Here in verse 24, God explains what he's talking about in the last part of this verse. To the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. To dishonor here means to treat shamefully, to treat with contempt. Among themselves simply means with each other. They treat each other's bodies with contempt in a shameful manner, he's saying. Now, I can imagine somebody saying, Steve, would you get a little more specific here? What kind of things are they doing here? Would you talk about that? And the answer is no, I will not talk about it. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he wrote this, it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. Paul wasn't willing to talk about it either. He makes it clear that it's disgusting and shameful. God says it's shameful. It's dishonoring to their bodies. It's disgusting. Shameful even to speak of it. Now, why did God give them up to this kind of behavior? Well, he explains it more in verse 25. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. So God's underlining what he's, what he's already said. Just like anybody who's ever lived, if they want to see the truth about God, they can. God has made it known to them. In verse 18, he said, they suppress the truth about God by their unrighteousness. Here he says, they exchange the truth about God for a lie. In verse 23, he said, they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Here in verse 25, he said, they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. By the way, I think for most, if you're like me, the word creature makes you think of an animal. Uh, makes me always think of some kind of animal. But in the Greek text, it refers to anything that was created. So they worship things that God has made, God has created, instead of worshiping the God who made those things. It's really foolish. They didn't want God. They preferred a lie. So they pretended that God didn't exist, and they naturally fell into worship of God's creation. This is the kind of verse that reminds us that there are a lot of people in our day who choose to be pantheists. They're worshiping the creation. The extreme environmentalists, I think, fall into this category. They're worshiping God's creation instead of worshiping God. Have you heard people who worship the Mother Earth? <laughs> Sometimes they call her Gaia. Yeah, they're worshiping the creation. They're people who worship the rainforests. They're people who worship the wilderness areas in America. And they will convince themselves that their life's coming from Mother Earth, not from God. They didn't want God. 
They didn't want God's ways. So God said, you don't want me? Okay, have it your way. So he gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity and the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. God never forces anyone to love him. That's not love, is it? Love has to be a choice from a free moral agent. But there are consequences of the decision to reject him. And God clearly wants people to know what those consequences are. He warns us of the consequences. Notice also one more thing here. He didn't say they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, period, although that would have made sense to us. But he adds some words. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Look at this. Who is blessed forever? Amen. <laughs> the word blessed is a very close synonym for the word praise or, or maybe the word celebrated or honored or magnified. All these words would work. So they may choose to bless or praise or celebrate or magnify their sin. And many people are today. They may praise or magnify the lie that they've chosen, but that praise will come to a terrible, shocking end. True praise of the true God is going to go on forever and ever. How foolish it is to despise the praise of the Creator and to embrace praise of what He's created, especially when men are using what He created in a sinful, selfish, rebellious manner. Let me see if I can sum this up. We're all tempted to sin, all of us, don't, don't be hearing a lesson like this and thinking about somebody else doing something bad. We all are born with a nature that's drawn to sin. And we all have a choice to make. We can agree with God about that and repent of it and start worshiping Him and loving Him. Or we can embrace that sin and wallow in it, claiming it's who we are. And if we choose to embrace the sin and worship the creation, God will give us up to it. He lets us have our way. But the outcome will be horrible. And if we choose to agree with God and call sin, sin, if we choose to worship and praise the great creator instead of the things that he's made for his joy and our joy too, we'll have the thrill of praising and blessing and honoring him and working with him throughout eternity. So today I just want to challenge you to reject the lie, cling to the truth, worship the true God, live throughout eternity with great joy, no regrets. Well, Paul's not done, and we're not either, but we're going to stop here for now and pick it up here next time. So, Father, thank you so much for revealing more of your truth to us in this very powerful passage in Romans chapter 1. Thank you for being an awesome God. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you for teaching us the truth about people who reject you and who embrace sin and start worshiping your creation instead of worshiping you. Lord, we ask you for mercy for them. But we know that mercy comes when they repent. So I pray that you would work in the hearts of many people, drawing them to yourselves, granting them repentance. Help us to be instruments in your hands to tell your truth to others, however they receive it. Help us to be found faithful to speak the truth in love with power of your Holy Spirit. And get glory, Lord. Help us to not be deceived by the world. Help us to not be taken in by the world's arguments, the world's tricks, the world's foolish way of thinking. But help us to keep our focus on you and keep on giving you glory and honor and thanksgiving. You are the one incorruptible, immortal God, and you are worthy of all our praise and worship. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.